Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. Hey, I want to say happy Veterans Day to you. Uh, I know uh, from the only experience, my own experience, my grandfather um, serving as a veteran, or now he was a veteran, and several others uh, that I've known. I just know it's one of those things where if you have a family member who is in the armed forces in the service, man, it just it is a huge weight for the whole family, a huge sacrifice. So uh, one day out of the year is certainly not enough to honor you, but we definitely say thank you this morning um, for your service. Uh, we are jumping into the last, uh, second to last of our um, sermons on the series that we've been calling Created. So if you have your Bibles, open it up, go to the beginning. Um, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, if you don't own one, uh, we're going to have all the words up here today, but then we've got them um, sitting outside the same translation I use in here. You can pick one up when you leave today. There's a table on your right as you leave. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. In this series called Created, we themed it this way because we tried to have one simple goal, and that's to figure out what we are created for. What's our purpose? Because if we could nail that down, what our purpose, like what's the target on the wall that our life is supposed to be aiming at, man, that creates a lot of confidence in how you live your life. It creates a lot of simplicity in decision-making. Doesn't mean decisions are easy, but at least I know in terms of what job and what career path I'm supposed to take, in terms of who I'm supposed to spend my life with, my friends, my spouse, etc. there's a target on the wall, and will these decisions all help me get to that target on the wall, right? We said that is what we were after. Can we figure that out? And so we looked at the, the first whole half of the series was really looking at God himself, right? Because we said if we can know God, the one who created us, the one who gave us that purpose, that's going to help us figure out whatever that purpose is. We've got to know the one who created us. And it started with this idea that we said, even down to maybe a prayer we need to pray every day, is that God kind of goes like this, you're not a part of my story, but I'm a part of your story. All right, that was all of Genesis chapter one. And, and what we looked at for those first two weeks is that God is the hero. God's the protagonist. God's the one who's the center of the story. And I am just merely a character in his story. He's not a character in my story. And that was our big first setting with that. But then we saw that God created us. He chose to create us. And we saw this, we looked at this really for three weeks in his image. So mankind is uniquely created in the image of God, which means that's where we found our purpose. And for three weeks, we've been looking at that target on the wall. We really five weeks looking at that target on the wall of being created in his image, which means we are to be visible, tactile representations and expressions of the character of God to the world around us. So that's where we started to find our purpose. Our purpose is first to enjoy the relationship with God the Father who created us, and then to display his character to the world around us. The Westminster Catechism, right, sums that up really quickly and just says, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God, 
to glorify him, glorify him, and enjoy him forever, to enjoy him. And so that's where we started looking. We started looking at how men and women, Pastor Scott did an awesome job last week in talking about women. We looked at both of them, how they are created differently, but in a complementary way to display the glory of God. So as we work together, right, seeking to display the glory of God, we see more of how good God is when we work together. We are cooperating reflections of the image of God. And so that's, we see that really good in marriage, and we see that really good on display in the church family which is why the more we are a part of the church family, the more we should be seeing the image of God as it's expressed uniquely in each one of us. And that's what makes the church family so unique among any other group in the world, right? And so if, if everything were working well, what we've seen for five weeks, now coming to these last two weeks, if everything were working well, we have this incredible relationship with a God who's at the center of the story, but has chosen to be our father who loves us and we experience that love. Then we experience that love tangibly through the interaction of other saints with one another. So I see a whole lot of God in you. You're created differently than me, right? And the more people, the more believers that I interact with, the more I see the love of God. And then I'm able to display the love of God to you. And then together, all together, we start displaying that love of God to the world that desperately needs it. And that's what we've been looking at. That's the way it should be. Today is about why it's not that way, right? That's the way it should be. There should be nothing but this peaceful coexistence with God and mankind where we enjoy one another and we experience the love of God. But what do we have instead? We have rage and anger that leads to mass shootings, shootings inside of schools. We have human trafficking, genocide, wildfires that rage out of control. That's all in the last seven days. The world is not the way it should be. There was a, um, a British historian who was living um, right immediately following, was living during the time of World War II. His name was Lord David Cecil. He's a historian, philosopher, and he's kind of right there looking at and trying to figure out how he talks about the Holocaust. Right now, just it's, it's, he's seen it. And now here he is trying to talk about it shortly in the aftermath of World War II. And he said, the philosophy of progress, which is the idea that every generation is getting better than the one before it, right? So we are a better version of humanity than the one before it. We're growing, we're progressing. He said, the philosophy of progress has led us to believe falsely that the savage and the primitive, that, that they are behind us, right? We're not like that anymore. And he said, and this is just so telling, and I think an incredible insight into humanity, you see it up here, it turns out it was within us, the savage, the primitive. You see what Lord David Cecil figured out, what many have said since, and listen, this guy was not a believer, not a Christian saying this. Um, many believe he was, he was actually an atheist, and several others have said this. Look, what haunted him is not that there, he realized it's not that there's evil out there. It's that there's evil in here. And the only way we will ever make sense of the world around us is when we realize and we start to come to grips with how we deal with the evil in here. That's what our chapter today is all about. That's what we're going after with Genesis chapter 3. So if you opened up there, Genesis chapter 3. Listen, what you're going to see is why you and I do evil things. 
why evil things happen, why the world is so messed up. And the one word at the center of our answer to that question, the one word is sin. You see, sin is the evil within us carried out at a personal and group level. So as we look at the first sin today, I want to show you how sin works, and I want to show you what God did about it. Genesis 3, listen, it is up there as one of the most important chapters in the Bible. I've told you, all good theology finds its starting place in Genesis 1 through 3, right? And this one is just a very important chapter. Because if you're created by God, created to flourish in relationship with God, created to flourish in relationship with one another and with the world around you, and you don't, why? Why doesn't that come easier? Why do bad things happen? And why do, we, why do we do bad things? And why do we think even worse things? I don't think I need to spend a lot of time telling you how you do actually think bad things, right? But that's going to be a big part of our day. Let me explain. Here's why this is so important. Your awareness of your sin and your awareness of your inability to do anything about it, that's what creates desperation for God in your life. You catch that? Your awareness of your sin, and we're going to talk about that for a little while today, and your awareness of your inability to fix it. We're going to talk about that today. Because that's those two things together is what's going to create desperation for God. And in your desperation for him, it'll allow, you, it'll allow room for him to really go to work on you. And that's when you start to see fruit. Now, I'll explain it this way. Yesterday, my neighbor comes up to me. Uh, you know, we bought a house last year. We're in a, in a little subdivision. Neighbor comes across the street and said, hey, man. Have you uh, winterized your irrigation system yet? I said, well, I know the word system in that sentence you just said. What? You know? No, what? And he said, yeah, man. Uh, and then he starts to explain it. He said, well, here's the deal. You know, the temperature's going to get colder tonight, and they're going to get colder for the next little bit. And you have these um, sprinklers in your front yard, and they're connected to some pipes under the ground. And if you don't get all that water out from the pipes, what's going to happen is those, the water's going to freeze in there over the winter. Those pipes are going to bust, and it's going to create all kinds of destruction. And I went, all of a sudden, I was very aware, right? I had awareness of a problem. And then immediately, and he said, yeah, man, you can just do it back there um, under the water box. You know, you open that up and you look at the pipes and you just use the thing. And I, I was like, I was also aware of my complete inability to do anything to solve the problem, right? Fully aware I had a problem. Fully aware I had no idea where to start how to fix it. And so I became desperate for Kevin's help. I was like, great, man. Will you come show me by doing it all? And, and I'll watch, right? <laughs> because even if I start, uh, it was not going to be good, right? But listen, this is how a lot of us, I started to think about it um, as I was driving around yesterday. It's how a lot of people kind of think about God and think about their sin. Like maybe we're a little bit, maybe we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea that that water is going to freeze and that there's water in the pipes in our life. And when the winter comes in our life, it's going to freeze. It's going to create all kinds of destruction. You might not have any idea. You might not be aware at all that underneath all the problems in your life, what's going on is the sin you've never dealt with. But then on the other side, some of us are aware. And most of us will be like, yeah, you know, I know. It's a, I could have looked at Kevin and said, yeah, I'm sure it'll be okay. That's what a lot of us do with our sin. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'll be okay. And we even start to try and do things to fix it on our own, right? We start to try and fix it on our own. Most of these, that's just an inability problem. Both of these problems are carried around by people. Listen, people who say they believe in God, 
but have no desperation for him. And so he never does anything in our lives, and the whole time, the pipes in our lives are about to burst, and we never knew it. Listen, Genesis 3 is a giant reality check on us. So altogether, we're going to grapple with the depths of evil present within us. Listen, plenty of good people live shallow spiritual lives. It's because they're not desperate for God. Desperate people, desperate people are the ones who experience the deep mercies that God has to offer us. It's the desperate people who, who find those deep mercies, and it's the desperate people who then start to live with great purpose in their lives. Here's our big idea. I've said it a couple times, but I always want you to have one thing you kind of walk out of here with, knowing um, you can kind of put, put this thing into practice and everything else. My awareness of my sin and my awareness of my inability to fix it, that's what's going to create desperation for a Savior. Today's story is where God's going to show us our ancestors, the first two people, is going to show us the full scope of their sin. And then he's going to do something remarkable. But listen, here's how the day is going to be divided up. We're going to spend time talking about awareness, being aware of the depths of our sin, of the evil within us. And then we're going to look at how unable we are to do anything actually about it. And then I'm going to show you that in that space where we finally, my Lord willing, I, I, it's a weird, maybe it's just a hard prayer, but as your pastor, I know is the right prayer to pray. Is that My prayer today is to convince you that you're not a good person, which I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's my prayer. Because until you get that, Jesus is useless to you. Jesus is not around to just make you a little bit better. Oh, let's see, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go into, go into the Bible. All right, listen, you, you're not a, a good person. But I also want to convince you at the same time, right when you grab hold of that, you have a really good God who loves you so much. All right, here we go. Let's start in on how sin works. This is Genesis chapter 3. This is the awareness part, verse 1. The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Stop right there. Here's the first thing you're going to see about how sin works. The original source of sin is Satan, the enemy of God. Putting that out there. Revelation 12, 9 calls Satan the ancient serpent, the great deceiver. He is smart. He was made by God. He was a fallen angel before sin was on earth. Sin was in the spiritual realm. Satan had rejected God's authority. The Bible makes it clear he is the father of evil, and all evil finds its source in him. Now, listen. If you are a skeptic, you're here with a friend today, I, I want to say that I get it right here. By this point in this sermon, your guard might be up. I've said sin and Satan a good bit. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be honest with you and show you God's word and give you the most, the, the most clear picture of the Christian message that I can and why I think it's actually, listen to me, I think it's actually the most thoughtful explanation for why the world is the way it is because we all have to answer why is there evil in the world or we can ignore it and you're ignoring it is actually an answer as well. Yes, our belief includes supernaturally evil forces at work in the world led by Satan himself. Here it keeps going in verse 1. He said to the woman, did God really say you, can eat, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I want you to catch this here. Satan didn't just come and go, bam, strike the woman, bite her, dead. He didn't do that, did he? That seems like the obvious attack to me. No, the serpent was smarter than that. 
and knew that the greatest destruction he could cause would be to create a rift, a conflict between the woman and her God. Between God and his people. And to do that, to do that, the first step, he needs them to question God's authority. That's the next thing I want you to see what sin does. Sin doubts God's word. This is the question you have to understand is at the heart of your sin. That question, has God really said? Has God really said don't sleep together outside of marriage? That seems silly. That seems old-fashioned. Has God really said there's only one way to heaven? That seems intolerant. Has God really said that our money is his money? That seems ridiculous. Has God really said turn the other cheek? Has he really said love those who persecute me? Seems nice, and I believe in God and everything, but when my desires are raging up in a way that conflicts with what God says, the impulse of my sinful nature within me is to ask, has God really said that? When we start questioning God, listen, we are literally falling for the oldest trick in the book. Here's the first trick, right? That's the first one he did, to question God, to get humans to doubt. Look at Eve's response, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the, fr- the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, we're going to do a little comparison of what God said and what Eve said God said. Because on the surface, it looks like she's reciting God's command. But you look closer and what you see is Eve distorting God's original command. It's as if in her heart she is beginning to manipulate God's command that's going to, in a way that's going to make her feel better about rejecting it here in a minute. Watch. This Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we looked at it the other day. I got them up side by side for you, but you can look at them, you know, just flip a page back or if you've got your Bible open. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. Look, the first thing she does is she diminishes God's word. God, she diminishes his generosity. She says in Genesis 3, what she say? Yeah, we can eat from the fruit in the trees of the garden. It's subtle. But God was a generous father giving them anything to eat from. And she says, yeah, we can eat from the trees. Something bad's happening in her heart. No longer is God being a generous God. He's just the overseer that allows them an allotment of food. And then she added to his word about the tree. She adds this phrase. Look, he says, you must not eat from the tree. She says... You must not eat it or touch it, right? She, she adds to him. He never said that. She's making God more legalistic than God is. And then at the very end, she softens God's word. Now eat it or you will die. And God said, no, no, you will certainly die. She took out the certainty, softened the consequences, almost leaving room for doubt. Now listen, I know you look at that side by side and you might look at me and go, I think you might be reading too much into this. Listen. There was one command. That's it. One short command. If you had one command and it was life or death, you could memorize that command. Right? It's one sentence. If you can memorize the Pledge of Allegiance, if you can memorize the Social Security number, if you can memorize lyrics to a Post Malone song, surely, surely you can memorize this one command. But look, what's she doing, y'all? She sounds like a child when her desires lead her to question her parents' rule about touching the oven when it's on, right? Well, 
We're not supposed to touch it. Why does a child recite a parent's command that way? Well, you know, it's not, we're not supposed to do it. That's not how mom or dad said it, right? Mom didn't go, now listen, child, you're not supposed to touch this. <laughs> no, that's not how the parent does it. The parent says, listen, I love you. And for your own good, because this thing will burn you, it will surely burn you. If you touch it, I don't want you to touch it for your own good. The message comes out as protection of a loving parent, but then gets distorted and recited as a burdensome law, keeping the child from having all the good that they could have. Because before the child can reject their parent's law, the child has to question the lawgiver and then distort the law into something that's actually bad for them. This is what we do with God's word. I get this all the time with high school, college students who ask me the question in their relationships, how far is too far? The mindset of that question is that God is withholding something from you, that God is some cosmic party killer. When he says in Song of Solomon, do not awaken love until it's time, he's doing it because he's created physical intimacy between a man and a woman. He's the one who created it. He formed the recipe. He knows what also will ruin it and will destroy you in the process. He is your father in heaven. He is not a heavenly hall monitor. He's got the greatest wedding gift of all, and so he tells you what to do with it. Why would we run away from that? Instead, run towards that and towards the God in heaven who loves us so much to offer that to us. But why do we do it? Paul said so in Romans 7. Romans 7, 7. Paul said, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And then sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. My sinful nature heard, oh, a law? I must break it. Okay. That's, that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying sin was like that serpent laying dormant within me, but then there was a rule. A rule? Better go break it. Right? You can't tell me what to do. In fact, let me, let me give you this kind of a, a question for you to consider this week. All right? What do your interactions with God look like lately? And, and here's what I mean. Do they look more like following a rule giver? Or do they look more like fellowshipping with a father? And I think that'll tell you a lot about how you think about sin, about how you think about yourself, how you think about your Savior. Are you begrudgingly following the rules of a lawgiver, or are you fellowshipping with a loving father? Verse 4, we got to keep going. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Now that the enemy has her questioning, has her doubting, he goes for the kill. Now we're getting to the core of sin. God said you will die. Satan says you will not. This is where the evil lurking within her takes full form. So let me say this as plainly as I can. Sin tells me God is wrong and I am right. Plain and simple, write it down, recognize what it is. Now, immediately, some of you might respond to me and say, look, man, sometimes I, I know that it's wrong, but I, I know that I shouldn't do it, but I do it anyways. Now, listen, we're going to talk about this a little bit in a minute, but your actions are a far better indicator of what you actually believe than your words. You might say you know that it's wrong, but you believe that it's worth it. 
which means you don't believe eternity is at stake, which, you, which means you believe God is much smaller and much weaker than he actually is, and you are much grander and stronger than you actually are. You have no idea what you're dealing with. You think you know better than God, and so you act on that belief that you know better than God. That is an awareness problem. You're not fully aware of all the water in the pipes. You're saying, eh, it's no big deal. Eh, it's no big deal about sin is the biggest barrier to God working in your life. I'm 100% convinced of that. And what I'm trying to tell you today is that you have to own it. Even if you play like you believe in God, the God you actually believe in is yourself. When it comes down to it, you know that song we sing sometimes, you're a good, good father? You're going to sing, you're a good, good me. That's what you're going to sing. That's who you are. You got... You have to see that sin is this nature within you that you then act on, and it's rebelling against what God is telling you to do. And it's a lie. I don't have enough time to do this, but it's a lie that Eve can't figure out. You've got to see that. She is deceived. And so is Adam. They're standing right there. They're deceived. It won't be until the lie fails you and you're experiencing destruction from it, that you finally realize it was a lie all along. And so I don't have, this is not a sermon on community, I don't have time to go there, but you understand why I beat that drum like so much here. Because you need some people to show you your blind spots. Lest your whole life, pipes bursting everywhere when it could have been avoided. Here comes the moment, here comes the fall, verse six. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. Here we are, man and woman have decided God is wrong, they are right, they act. And in that simplicity, we find our definition of sin. All right, this is, uh, we've been building to this. Now let me give you definition of sin. Sin, it's a simple form. We see it right here. It is willfully disobeying God. That's what it is. Willfully disobeying God. It's not complicated. It's choosing your way over God's way. And what I want you to own right now in this moment is that we've all done it. So you've done it. Romans 3, 23. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Not some, not those other people, but you're pretty good. All. This is the awareness thing, guys. All have fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, John um, says that we all have sin within us, and one of the most, I mean, this is like one of the most real verses in Scripture. This is 1 John 1, um, 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us, because we're all sinners. He's saying that, he's saying that when in every single setting we put up this facade like everything's fine, like we have it all together, when we don't need anything, when we're good, John's saying, nope. If you think your life is good and you don't have any sin to worry about, all, all that's happening there is you're deceived. The enemy has got you right where he wants you. That's all that's going on, which is why, listen, whenever um, Courtney and I have the, just the great privilege to do so much um, premarital mentoring and, and counseling with couples as they're getting married, several of you guys have had the great privilege to do that, did in our former church as well, um, but we kind of they kind of realize that when a couple sits down and for months and months, they just keep smiling at us and telling us everything's great. Everything's this during engagement. Everything's great. Everything's going well. We know those are the people with some real issues, right? 
because they are just being deceived. It's the people that sit on our couch and go, listen, we got a lot of issues, a lot of problems. Like, okay, you're ready for God to work. We see it every single time, every single time. Let me show you what happens next. Verse 7. The eyes of both of them, I'm going to read you through verse 13. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. First sin followed by the first cover-up. <laughs> verse 8. Then the man and his wife, that's an original. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And hid. They hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, and we've looked at this for a couple of weeks, the woman you gave me to be with me, she, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Oh, dude. So then verse 13 the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman, lockstep right with her man. Now the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's the last thing I want you to see about how sin works. Sin hides and blame shifts. When it's finally, when you start to realize what's happened, what's at stake, it hides and it blame shifts. When someone comes to me and says, look, man, it's not me, you know, it starts to make excuses. It's just the people that I run with. It's just the people that I'm around. The Bible says, no, it's not. You are the problem, right? When, when a teenager says, yeah, it's just I'm hanging out with the wrong crowd. No, you are the wrong crowd. That's why you hang out with those people. The problem is you. Sin creates this force field of denial around us. We refuse to own our sin, and we blame everybody. Like I said before, Adam blamed literally everyone else on earth at the time, right? And we still do the same thing today. We will never understand Jesus until we own our sin. And now that you've seen how it works, the awareness of this sin and how it works, I want to show you the consequences of sin. And in that, show you your inability to be able to fix it. What you're going to see is God saying that this one sin, Adam and Eve eating this fruit, brought with it total corruption of the whole world that he's created. Verse 15, I'm going to go there. God curses the serpent, and he says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This is our verse for next week, okay? This is where we are finishing the series, we're going to spend the whole Sunday mining the wonders of this verse. In short, a child of Eve is going to crush the head of the devil one day. He will be wounded in that battle. This right here is the first ever whisper of salvation that Jesus is going to bring. Already here in Genesis 3, you got to star that verse. We're going to, again, it's going to be a big deal. Verse 16, he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. And ladies everywhere said, thanks, Eve. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. He said, then he goes and talks to the man. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree by which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. Here's the first consequence of sin. It's conflict and corruption. Really, they're kind of... I put them together because they work so much hand in hand. So maybe it's the first two, but conflict and corruption. 
your desire will be for your husband, right? That means your desire will be to be the head over him. Instead, though, he will be the head over you. Eve will be offered the beautiful role of helpmate, but she will rage against it now because of sin. The husband will keep that role over her, but then the danger for him is going to be instead of servant leadership, he's going to have the danger of abusing his power. Both, of course, lead to great conflict between the man and the woman where there wasn't prior. Labor, whether it's childbearing labor or vocational labor, it's going to be much more painful because sin has corrupted it. So we find ourselves saying, man, it shouldn't be that hard. Work shouldn't be that hard. I mean, we should sweat and everything else. It shouldn't be all that hard. And I'm like, you're right. It shouldn't. But sin has corrupted our world. Verse 19, you'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's the next consequence of sin. This is a big one. It's death. Consequence of sin is death. I want to stop for a minute. This is really important. God told Adam and Eve they would surely die if they ate. The consequence for their rebellion against God was death. But it wasn't just Adam and Eve sinned, so Adam and Eve died. It was that through Adam's sin, death came to all mankind. This is Romans 5.12. You really, if you want to spend more time, maybe it's in your community group, spend some more time trying to understand all that's happening in Genesis 3, study Romans 5. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered the world, not just to him, entered the world through one man, and death entered through sin, and this way death spread to all people because all sinned. And then Genesis 5, it's going to start, Genesis 5 is going to start listing off some of Adam's descendants. It's going to be your first, like, he begat, 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 begat. But it's also going to say, he died, he died, he died, he died. And there's a reason for that repetition. It's to hammer a point home. Death now comes for us all. One day, you will die. And you cannot fix that. You can't. And on the other side of this temporary life is eternity. Have you considered that? What do you make of eternity? But listen, there are actually several far worse consequences to sin than physical death. Here's the next one. The next consequence of sin we see is guilt. See, every single one of us now are guilty, both by nature and by action. Paul said death spread to all because all sinned. He's saying you were born with a corrupt, sinful nature, and then you will act on that nature. We're all guilty of acting on the evil inside of us, right? Nobody questions, nobody who has kids ever questions this. Nobody. Your kids do plenty of things you never taught them to do. It happens all the time. You didn't teach them to manipulate, to disobey, to lie. Why do they do it? Because that is what's inside of their sweet little precious hearts. It is. And just as they get a little bit older, all they do is just get the, the mobility to act on it. We are all, even David's gonna say, even from inside his mother's womb, a guilty sinner. And as we grow, we try to do good things. But because of our corrupt nature, even our good things are stained by it. This is Isaiah 64. All of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts, all the good that we try to do, it's like a polluted garment. And I can't even fully get into what that 
means there. It's graphic. You can't justify your sin. You can't do enough good things to fix your sin. And this is what we do. We try to fix it on our own, right? We become aware of how sinful we are, so we try to do a lot of good things to fix it, to justify ourselves as good people worthy of God's acceptance on our own. But we can't do it because even your attempts at justification are sinful. The way Jerry Bridges said, he said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And the guilty verdict on us means we must pay the price for our sin that Adam and Eve paid, death. The wages of sin is death. And it's not just physical death. Listen, here's the next consequence of sin. The next consequence of sin is separation from God, both in this life and in the one to come. In this life and in eternity. Verses 22 to 24 of Genesis 3, you keep reading, God drove them out of the garden. Sin brought in a disruption to our relationship with God. And now every single one of us is alienated from God because of our sin. Romans 8, 7 says the mind governed by the flesh, it's hostile to God. We have rejected God. Here's what I want you to see. The wage of your sin, the price that you get, the earnings for your sin, it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. It's eternal separation from God. That's what hell is. It's the eternal fulfillment of what we in our sin want separation from God. And scripture says, apart from Christ, we deserve hell for our sin. And look, I know right there is where a lot of people disagree with Christianity. You say, listen, man, I'll, I'll take that I'm a sinner. Okay. But that seems like way too much punishment for the crime. Eternal torment? First, let me go ahead and, and actually agree with you and even go further. Hell is far worse than you think it is. You read scripture about it, but It's not about torture, it's about justice. I want you to catch that. It is the justice carried out for rebelling against God, which all of us have done. So if you say to me, that punishment does not fit that crime, you don't understand who the crime is committed against. Let me explain it this way. Um, A couple of the guys this week helped me out with this, thought it was great. Imagine Pastor Scott, I see him out in the hallway, okay? You know, he did a great couple of sermons two weeks in a row. Did awesome. So I walk up to him and I just open-handed slap him in the face. What's going to happen? Well, we got enough of a friendship that he might just kind of look at me and be like, say, well, no, you need to explain that, right? Or he might punch me right back, right? And that'll be the consequence. Now, let's say I go up to a police officer on duty, right? We're just out in uptown and go up to him and like, hey, man, right in the face. What's going to happen? I'm gonna get, yeah, I'm going to jail. That's exactly what's going to happen. I'm getting, now, let's say I walk up to the President of the United States, rub that hand, just whack him. I may or may not even hit him before the Secret Service takes me down and they might shoot me dead. Now, my action in each of those scenarios has not changed one bit, has it? What's changed? It's the person that I'm doing the action to. The person that I'm sinning against is what changes the consequence of the action. If you don't believe that your sin deserves eternal separation from God, it's because you don't understand how holy God really is. He is holy, church. Isaiah 6, he said, one glance at the holiness of God, and Isaiah just goes, woe is me, for I'm sinful and unclean. I don't have time to speak of the other 
consequences of sin, how you become enslaved to it, how you become hardened in your heart towards God, how you become self-centered, how you become a consumer of the world instead of a contributor to it. But this is the power of sin. You are guilty. You're incapable of paying your debt because you sinned against a holy and perfect God and you are not holy or perfect. And even your best acts are corrupted and stained by sin. And the payment for your sin is death and eternal separation from God. Being aware, being aware of just how sinful your sin is and how unable you are to fix it. Now there, maybe by God's grace, you are actually desperate for a savior. And that's where Jesus comes in. So this is where I want to finish, is how Jesus rescues us from sin. I feel like we need Paul's words to young Timothy, where he said, God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Brothers and sisters, as I've been thinking about this morning, I don't want you to hear, I want you to hear a guy trying to Bible beat you as if he's got his life all together. My prayer has been that it would be the tone of Paul to Timothy. Thanks be to God that he sent Jesus to save sinners, because I know the more I the more I try and walk with God, the more sinful I really am. And Paul knew he's like, I'm the worst of all sinners. Paul was aware of his need for for being saved. And he was never more, as you read the New Testament, never more than a breath away from celebrating his Savior. Desperate people are the ones who find the deep mercies of God. The problem is our sin, right? Listen, if death is the penalty for our sins, then payment for sin will mean deliverance from death. This is the hope of the gospel. See, Jesus, who was sinless, which means he didn't have to die for his sins, willingly went up on the cross and he died, he says, to pay for your sins and mine. Just like we all received sinful nature from Adam, I didn't finish Romans 5 for you. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says we all receive deliverance. Verse 19, just as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. We say it around here, Jesus in my place. We don't deserve it. We can't pay him back for it. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gift of God to you, because you could never pay for it. You could never do enough to earn it. So God, because he loves you, he's the father in heaven. We've said it for the whole series. The father in heaven that loves his creation and sees his children running away but doesn't want them to run away, says he gives you his only son. He gives you. Gives that son, puts him on the cross and kills him to pay for your sin and mine so that we can be reconciled to him. We are separated from God because of our sin, but through his death and resurrection, Christ reconciles us back to him. We were dead in our sin but we're made alive with Christ through his resurrection. Y'all, our outlook was terrible. That's what most of the sermon was telling you. Most of Genesis 3 is telling you is that our outlook is terrible, but Jesus rescued us. That's why we are so, so insistent on preaching the gospel every week here. It's our only hope. It is our victory song. We really do believe grace is amazing, right? Amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved who? A good person like me? 
Someone who deserved it like me? No, a wretch. Saved a wretch like me. Listen, let me say it this way. The gospel declares victory of the Lord Jesus over death by deposing death of its power of that evil that lurks within us through the cross. And then it robbed death of its prize. That's us through the resurrection. The gospel says you are more sinful. You are more sinful than you ever thought you were. And maybe, maybe that's what you're seeing with the rest of us who have known the gospel for a little while. That's what we know. The closer, the longer I'm a Christian, what I keep learning is (laughs) how much of a sinner I really am. You are more sinful than you ever thought. And you are more unable to fix it than you ever realized. But at the exact same time, the gospel says you are more loved than you ever dared hope for. That's that's the love of God raining down on you through Christ. And he offers you that love again afresh in full today. I've been praying expectantly for this morning, hoping, hoping and begging the Lord to stir your heart, not to hear condemnation. Jesus did not come in the world to bring condemnation. He came to bring salvation. When you are aware of your sin, then Christ comes in and then in desperation, in desperate need of a savior, Christ comes in and he saves you and he offers it as a gift. Let me lead you in a a brief time of prayer. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Here's how I want you to pray. This is, the gospel is for sinners and we are all sinners. Some of you have believed this gospel and you have received the salvation that Christ offers you. If that's you this morning and you identify yourself as a Christian, I want you, this is going to be kind of a time of confession for everyone. I want your confession. I want you to confess, Christian, where you have run away from God. You know the salvation you've experienced, that salvation from your sin, the the beauty of it the sweetness of it, the amazing grace God has offered you, you need to turn back into that and lean back into that and confess your sin again to him and remember that he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Lean back into those loving arms of the Father one more time this morning. And if you are not a Christian, I'm telling you, I've been praying for you all week. I don't know your name, but I've been praying for you all week. That maybe God this morning has made you aware that you are are a sinner like the rest of us. But you have never received the gift of salvation that God offers you. My burden for you has been that you would see the consequence of your sin that it would horrify you and then you would hear the grace of God offered you in Christ and run to him. Romans 10.9 If you confess, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he is the one who died for your sin, and it says if you confess, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth, that he rose from the dead, you'll be saved. Do you believe 
that he died for you, for your sin. And that by believing it, scripture says, you can have life in his name. Eternal life is what he offers you. Life abundantly now on this side of eternity and then life in relationship with the Father in heaven forevermore. He offers that to you today. Do not delay this decision. Do not put it off. He brought you here this morning for this message from his word. He speaks through his word and I'm praying right now. Would you receive that salvation? Yes, God. This is all you have to pray. God, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me, for my sin. I believe he got out of the grave. I am believing today. Thank you, God, for saving me. I don't deserve it. But I worship you. God, do the work through your spirit that only your spirit can do. I beg you. We beg you. And we collectively as we're going to sing about in a minute. We know that our sin is great, but your love is greater. And we worship you for that. What a awesome, what a strong God, a good God we serve. We pray to you only through the name of the risen Christ. 